The American Alpine Club invited me out to Boston for the AAC's annual benefit dinner weekend to do a live interview with Quinn Brett about the accident she was involved in while attempting a speed ascent on the nose of El Cap with Josie McKee in Yosemite October of 2017 that left her with paralysis. I quickly said yes, because as a female climber myself, I look up to her. And not only for her impressive climbing resume, she has been a role model for me and a woman that I admire for many reasons. So by accepting the invitation, I would have to travel two days from Alaska to get there. And off we go. Okay, here I go. Um, starting up the car in Haines, Alaska to start my trek all the way to Boston to interview Quinn. Um, I'm 35 miles outside of Haines, Alaska, about five miles from the Canadian border. So I have to drive into town to the airport and then hop on a little plane to Juneau. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Hanging right here. Okay. And the journey begins. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. This episode is also sponsored by Petzl, proud backers of the Helmets Matter campaign. If you or a friend have had an experience where you feel a helmet saved your life, contact Helmets Matter at Petzl.com. Petzl is happy to exchange new helmets for broken ones in return for sharing your story in order to emphasize the importance of wearing helmets. Thank you to the Colorado Howard Bound School and Health IQ for being contributing sponsors of the Sharpen Podcast. <laughs> I heard they're calling for snow for the next week here. Yeah, tomorrow we're supposed to get about eight inches. Oh boy. Hang on to your hat. <laughs> Thank you so much for a beautiful flight. I hope you got lots of pictures. Oh, I did. I got lots of pictures. Don't worry. I'm going to fast forward past the eight-hour layover in Juneau, the flight to Seattle, the layover in Seattle, the red-eye flight from Seattle to Boston, and then the sequence of trains that it took me to arrive at the hotel to the grand finale. 
This is what we have all been waiting for. Ba ba da da. A sharpened interview with the fabulous Quinn Brett. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Quinn. Um, so, yeah, I, um, you've been a mentor of mine, and um, um, I've just looked up to you a lot. I've uh, watched your climbing, watched you progress, um, and so I am so honored to be here with you right now. Um, yeah, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'll take, we'll take it from there. Uh, I am Quinn Brett. I live in Estes Park, Colorado. I have for about... Uh, 15 years, but I'm a native of Minnesota, good old Minneapolis, uh, and I started climbing at a young age, even though flat Minnesota doesn't have very many rocks. I'm just fortunate enough to have traveled to national parks as a kid and um, began exploring and exploring and bouldering and then freaking my parents out and then deciding that I needed a, a rope and a book uh, by John Long, in fact, was how I learned how to rock climb. What's your favorite cracking area? Um, golly so many. Uh, Lumpy Ridge is probably one of them, the Diamond, uh, and then, uh, yeah. How many times have you climbed the Diamond? Uh, I do have a list of how many times. Over 20 times I've climbed the Diamond. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, about the day? So you were, you had an accident. Um, and we're all really eager to hear the story. And, and really, I want to hear the story about the very beginning. So um, you've been climbing with this other female partner for a long time, and you've had some history with her. I mean, how many times have you guys climbed this same route together? Josie, McKee, and I have climbed the nose. Um, maybe this was our fourth time together. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah, you, you have systems dialed with each other, and it's comfortable. Yeah. yeah, in particular, like, the fall before, we had done a pretty big adventure in Yosemite. Um, we climbed seven walls in seven days, and so we were able to get our systems dialed and our personality, personalities to meld quite well in those seven days. Yeah. What was your favorite part of that trip that you did with Josie? The seven and seven? Um... I think I wrote about it somewhere on Mount Watkins. Um, that was our day four, so we we're a little tired. Um, Watkins is a little convoluted getting to. You have to kind of wander through some manzanita, and the trail's not so great. Um, and just trying to both keep each other in a positive attitude, just hiking. Um, I think we turned on music and just started, like, dancing and hiking at the same time to keep the morale up. Um, it was a supper fest. Yeah, and that day, yeah, and for sure. And that afternoon after my block, she kind of ticked poopered out in her block um, but she stuck through it and it was really awesome to summit and just know that like we both pushed through those those mental things those fatigue and frustrations with one another even and that was last fall that was yeah October 2016 so then did you and her talk about this a plan to to do the nose this year in October Yes, so I had flown out to Yosemite in June of this year as well, and so we climbed um, the nose then and then Half Dome as well. I only flew out for like four days. Um, But our intentions were I've been wanting to, um, for many years, been wanting to climb the triple in Yosemite, climbing El Cap, Half Dome, and Watkins, and try to do it in a day or in a push. 
Like, I didn't think I would be successful in under 24 hours, but I was thinking under 30. Like, just do one wall at a time and see if you're still motivated to do the next one. Um, and so I had a couple partners that said yes or that, you know, but the psych was wavering. And Josie finally, I think I convinced to, after 7 and 7, she was like, okay, let's try. Let's just get there. And so we knew we had certain goal times to get certain things under. Like we needed to be able to get the nose in under six hours to be confident that we could move on to the next wall. And so um, we climbed the nose in, in June, and it felt okay. It wasn't our best run by any means. And so when we October, we had plans to then kind of try to whittle that activity down again. I was doing pretty good for the last... 30 feet. <laughs> so, so yeah, talk to us about, um, about the days leading up to the climb on the nose and what you were thinking and feeling, what was going through your head. Um, I was a little conflicted going out to Yosemite this fall. I was, uh, I'm a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I work with seven dudes. So I have seven brothers that are my coworkers, and after six months of working with them, I was a little exhausted. Um, and it's like so emotionally exhausting being with seven guys all the time. Yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing men and I appreciate them. But right, just like having seven brothers around here. And of course, like how we work is quite, kind of intimate. Mm-hmm. Like we're saving other people's lives. So we have to be in that high strung environment with each other and deal with personalities. Um, and so I was just kind of struggling uh, with my own motivations of climbing. Um, and leaning towards some bigger runs that I had scheduled for the winter. And so going to Yosemite, I kind of felt obligated, I guess. I had made campground reservations, and I, Josie and I had made plans, and this triple had been in my head for five or five years or so, and so I felt like my ego was like, you should do it, you should try it. Um, yeah, so I was a little conflicted driving out there and uh, felt a little lost, um, just... I don't want to delve into the relation, my personal relationship, but I was having struggling with that. So felt a little lost, and so went out to Yosemite and was hanging out with tons of friends and just kind of felt like I was tagging along other people's endeavors. Like Josie and our another friend, Lauren, had planned to climb the, the triple direct. Uh, and so I kind of tagged along, and I was like, well, I don't really have anything else planned, so let's go do the triple direct. And so uh, uh, that was an amazing day, and our... our friend Lauren is kind of somebody that Josie and I have taken under our wing as a mentee Um, and it's been really cool to see her progression and so climbing you know we got we did the the salathary or the free blast and then we did the mirror and we were under the great roof like now doing the nose section and I was like geez like we're not going to top out in a certain amount of time and Lauren was like are you kidding me we're going to still top out El Cap in a day like this is amazing and I just kind of put it in perspective to me like oh right like just because we're not going my usual like fiddle pace, uh, this is still an amazing endeavor for her and for us. And we should be having fun right now. Uh, and so we did. We topped out and we broke a, the speed record, which is in 16 hours or something, as a party of three climbing the triple. And that was amazing for Lauren, and we had a good time. And then, then yeah, <laughs> yeah. And how cool! I don't know for Lauren that was pretty like what. I'm sure that's like in her history books right now is one of the coolest things. And for me, it was one of the coolest things, like me having climbed with her in Zion and trying to teach her how to aid climb and aid solo and seeing her up there giving her was really cool. And so then I remember the next day we just hung out and Savannah Cummings came and she had a big trip to Antarctica and just kind of needed to refresh on how to haul and um, those kind of systems. So we just went to a crag um, and helped 
teach her how to haul. I crawled into a haul bag, ironically. The day before my accident, I crawled into a haul bag and was the weight for the hauling. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did that the day before, and then Josie and I went to her house. She lives down in um, somewhere down the Merced, and uh, we had dinner, and we both were just like, what should we do tomorrow? Like, we planned to climb El Cap. Um, but we both were kind of, I don't know, just our motivations were kind of not necessarily present or understanding where our motivations were coming from, but we felt obligated to go do this. And so, yeah, she felt a little awkward. And that next morning she woke up and at like 6 a.m. came to the, where I was sleeping, this little trailer out back that she had. And I was like, I didn't sleep very well. Can we sleep in a little bit more and we can leave in, in a little bit? And I was like, yeah. And so she went back to bed for like another hour and then we finally rallied and we got up to El Cap Meadow at 10 in the morning. Um, and I was texting my boyfriend at the time about Hayden, who was a friend of mine, and I was struggling with Hayden's death and Hayden, just the whole Hayden thing, and Josie and I were talking about that, and we were like, well, we'd plan on climbing the nose, so let's just go. And so we just kind of like, out of habit, put our climbing gear on and out of habit walked to the base because that's what we said we would do and that's what we were going to do. Um, but in the same token, I was like, if we're going to go, like, I want to try hard. Like, let's try hard today. Because sometimes I've been at the base with partners and felt like the try hard necessarily, wasn't necessarily communicated for both of us. And, like, for me, I'm kind of on or off. Like, there is no, like, I don't know, slow pace, In the same I way, guess. I'm either awake or I'm sleeping. Yeah. And there's really nothing right. in between. Yeah, and I, it makes me sound like I'm an unenjoyable person to hang out with when I'm like, I'm either on or off. Like, either we're going or we're not. But, <laughs> right, but I, I, for, the, for this instance, I just wanted to communicate, like, I want to try hard today. Like, I want to try to give her. And so next thing you know, we were going, and I felt like I was climbing safe within reason for me. Like, I didn't feel, like, unsafe, and we were enjoying ourselves. We ran across a party on Dolt, and they gave us water, and we were chit-chatting and laughing, and la 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 and I was just moving quickly and she hauled her up time I think I got to the top of the Texas Flake and I was a little pooped um, I remember struggling speed climbing tactics like you're not leaving a lot of gear so I soloed Texas Flake and um, was trying to flick the rope around to the front side so that way Josie could just jug the slab instead of having the jug in the chimney and I remember flicking that around and it took me a minute and then I took out my phone because I have some specific gear beta written in my notes for the boot flake. So I Googled that and um, remember thinking, like, God, I just kind of, like, vaguely thinking, I wish I could just stop here. Like, I wish this was the top of my pitch. But I have one more pitch to go. And so I looked at my gear and was like, cool. Like, you got this. Just, like, dial it up. So I went out the bolt ladder. Um, did my little cam hook move, did the couple pieces of gear. At some point, Josie yelled to me. She got to the top of, of Texas Lake and was unfixing the rope, but it had gotten caught down in the chimney. So I remember her yelling to me, uh, you're not on belay yet. I have to um, go down and I have to rappel down and go get the rope. It's snagged. And I remember thinking in my head, like, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not on belay. Like, I don't have any gear in anyway, because that's the way you climb the pitch. And I usually climb it with a cam on each side. I have um, the Petzl rope things, not daisies. They're like little rope daisies. Just in case I take a fall, you can actually take a weighted fall with some safety. Um, and I usually have two cams on each one. And for some reason, I was just like, I only have like 40 feet more to go. Like, 
Just climb and put the one daisy on, the one daisy on. Um, and I knew that we were doing well at some time. Josie hollered up, like, in the middle of that pitch that I was at two hours, which I was, like, sick. Like, we're on really cruiser pace if I get to the top of this pitch around two hours. And all of that was just churning in my head. And I remember taking out an ultralight red Camelot. I think I was right-hand hand-jammed. I remember taking out the red Camelot, or at least I remember it visually falling between my legs on the daisy. And... I remember thinking about Hayden, like, seconds before that, for some reason. Like, Hayden came to my head. That gave um, me chills just now. And, I, yeah, and I mean, it sounds odd, and I'm not making it up to say that he came to my head, but last time I'd been in Yosemite with Hayden, he had taken a pretty big fall off the pancake flake on the nose, and he came down and had a giant hematoma on the back of his hamstring, and he and I just sat by the river and, like, soaked his leg. And talked about how that felt like he took a 60-footer and he was freaked out and he was like Quinn I don't know what we're doing why we're doing that and that was like maybe three or four years before this my accident so he flashed before my head the red camelot it was definitely an ultralight fell between my legs and I remember thinking and this is where it gets convoluted if I said I shouldn't do that or if I was already falling and said I shouldn't have done that I'm not really sure but I just then remember feeling like one second of a feeling like I was in an elevator and being falling. And, but thankfully, I don't remember the rest. I don't remember hitting. Did you, did you feel like you were falling forever? I think that whooshing feeling felt for a while, yes. I read somewhere that you fell like more out than just down. I read that as well, and I'm not sure. Right, and so that's where it gets convoluted. Like, I think I remember taking that red Camelot out and reaching my left hand across my hip to my right hip and trying to grab. I was thinking I need to grab a gold or a blue, number two or number three. And that's where it gets convoluted. Like, did I place that? I kept trying to ask my partner, like, was there another cam hooked to the right daisy? Like, was there a gold or a blue hooked to that right daisy? So did I put it in? And then it popped. So then I was on my two-cam system, or was I just being cavalier and bold and was like, I have 30 feet to go. Let's just try to finish it up, and it's 5'10". But it does kick out a little bit, and so did my hand just slip, and that's what kicked me out, or my foot just slip, and that's what kicked me out. Who knows? I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, and I fell, and I fell past Josie. Um, I ne- the rope never came tight. I fell probably 120 feet. Um, I'm pretty sure in my time in the hospital of being able to analyze my accident, I'm pretty sure my right scapula took the brunt of the fall. Um, and because, I, I don't know, like Libby Souter and I, she hung out with me in the hospital for a really long time. Um, we had a lot of time to like reflect on, you know, like I was like, how come I didn't land on my legs and just break my legs? And she's like, but Quinn, like, could have broke your legs and you could have bled out. Like, all of these things. Like, maybe this was, like, the perfect landing. Like, I don't have a head injury. I can talk to you all now. Um, I can use my hands. I just can't use my legs. So maybe it was, like, the perfect fall. Yeah. So I think my, I'm pretty sure um, I hit my right scapula pretty hard. And Texas Flake is kind of downward sloping, um, Leftward sloping, if you're facing El Cap, it kind of downward angles to the left. And um, so I probably hit that angling part, so I didn't hit like total horizontal rock, which is fortuitous. I hit like kind of a sloping ledge. Maybe I hit a little bit on the inside, so I wasn't necessarily again like I just hit it perfectly on my scapula, and then I think I folded over a little bit. And I think the impact of me hitting um, 
you know, my, what I broke was my T12 thoracic was a, it's called a burst fracture. So it kind of totally, <laughs> uh, and I think that's just because that's the weakest link. Like uh, uh, spinal above, you have your rib cage to protect and spinal below, you have your pelvis to help protect. And right there was like, there's no bones or anything to help protect that. So it was kind of the weakest link and that's what gave in. You also got four broken ribs, a punctured lung, a bruised liver, major trauma to the scapula, and again, burst fracture of the 12th thoracic vertebrae. Yeah. I read somewhere you said it looks, looks like someone took a sledgehammer to it. Yeah, it has holes in it and is like five cracks shattered. Yeah, my scapula doesn't look good. And I still have a tight, like a grade one dislocation in my, or a separation in my right shoulder, um, which is like in, norm, in everyday life, they don't, that's not something that they go into surgery for or fix. So that's just the way my shoulder is now, which makes swimming awesome. <laughs> so, so you fell 120 feet and you're below Josie. Yeah. So then what happened? I was unconscious for a little bit of time, which I can only imagine in Josie's head to come down to your partner after seeing her fling 120 feet off the mountain and now she's an unresponsive. How um, crazy that would be and traumatic that would be. So, and Josie thankfully is, uh, was part of Yosar um, and uh, so knew the numbers to call and obviously is very efficient and proficient at the techniques of rescue. Um, and so she fixed the rope appropriately, um, rappelled down to me. So now I'm on the, um, if you're facing El Cap, the very left side of Texas Lake, um, kind of in the rubble between Texas Lake and El Cap. And um, she rappelled down to me. I guess I was face down and unresponsive for a slight minute, but I did moan. And she has some... Um, we all know that when you, somebody has a spinal injury, that the injury you, is occur. It's happened when the fall happens. Like moving a patient um, doesn't cause more more damage usually, but that's something that she has. She struggles with, I think, a little bit internally. Is that she might have caused by rolling me over, that might have caused something. But by no means did she cause anything. Like I was already damaged. Um, but she wanted to roll me over because the first rule of emergency medicine, like get a good airway. Um, <clears throat> so she rolled me over, got a good airway, um, and I started to come to, and I guess I told her immediately that I had, I had no feelings in my legs, but I was complaining. My chief complaint was my right arm and scapula and how much pain that was. So you um, lost, uncon- you were unconscious for just a couple of, I think so, I think so probably 10 And then minutes. once you, once you, when she rolled you over, you were able to speak yeah. or did she have to get you to speak? No. No, I think I started like just coming to and speaking and moaning, and then next thing you know, I was like, I think I, she says that I said something like, I, I made a big mistake or, or something like that, like aware of my plight, essentially. But uh, complaining about the shoulder, mentioning my legs. Um, I did have a head laceration, so I was bleeding a lot on my head. I had a helmet on, um, but it flung off with the initial impact, and somebody actually found it at the base, and it looks okay. <laughs> yeah. So I did have the helmet on, yes, thankfully, again. And then, yeah, she helped rig the line and um, called dispatch, and apparently they kind of wanted more information and were not getting the direct answer that Josie wanted, so then she hung up and called uh, directly to the Yosemite Sarkash and used a couple F-bombs and said, uh, explained our, our situation. Um, 
And then they had to do a short haul off of El Cap, so that's where they um, hang one of the climbing rangers off below the helicopter and swing him into El Cap. So there's two that came swinging in. They landed on El Cap Tower, or El Cap Tower, I think? Yeah. Yeah. They landed on El Cap Tower, and those two guys that we happened to pass on Dolt, I think, were now there. Um, And so some random climbers were there to help as well. Um, and then Josie had rigged up a lot of the ropes, which saved a, sh- a shit ton of time. Like, that saved hours of them having to do some rigging, um, which helped, again, my rescue just be more um, expedited. And so I think then Brandon and I got in the litter. He loaded me up in the litter, and I remember that. I remember being a little, like, in and out, but I remember that being painful, having to move into the litter, which is the basket that I lay down in. And then they hooked up the helicopter. Um, Brandon and I flew down to the meadow, um, and I remember landing in the meadow, and then I was surrounded by a lot of the OSAR members who are friends of mine, like Bud Miller and Matt Bento. And uh, I remember looking at Bud, who was like on my bottom right. He was kind of down by my foot, and they were saying that I was going to have to transfer to, they're going to put me in another helicopter and have to transfer me to the hospital. And me knowing this, like you pay, like if search and rescue is free within national parks, but once you are leaving the national park, that's when you have to, that's when your stuff has to start calculating up your money starts calculating it up so I looked at Bud when he told me that and I was like Bud I can't afford that (laughs) that was my main concern (laughs) he was like Quinn we're putting you on the helicopter (laughs) Um, and explained that I had yeah like I had a step off my spine so I needed to be loaded in the helicopter and once I got in the helicopter that's when they gave me drugs and and my, my team back in Rocky, some of them are still working in October. Sometimes half the team like kind of gets laid off at the end of September, and the other half is still working in October. And uh, that girl, Lauren, called my boyfriend at the time, and he, he was working. He was, he's a climbing ranger as well, and he was working. And so then the whole climbing ranger team, he went back to the office. And so my whole climbing ranger team knew, and they were like uh, melding in on the radio so they could hear the whole rescue happening. And yeah, just both parties just doing the best they could for my benefit which is incredible. Um, where did they fly you to? I got flown to Modesto. It's an amazing town. Is it really? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm really sarcastic too, but don't really pick up on sarcasm, so I'm like, is she joking? I can't tell. Um, so what's in Modesto? Uh, there was, I think it's a trauma two center, but they had, they, they do do, they do have a spinal cord surgeon. And so that's why I got flown to that particular hospital. And then what? You're in the hospital for how many days? I was in the ICU for about a week. Um, and then I didn't have my surgery until a Monday and I had a surgery, and so I have um, some spinal cord fused now. So I have like, I call them my railroad tracks. So I have railroad tracks from T9 to L2. So that's like five or six vertebrae are fused. Um, I have a really awesome scar on my back. I could show all of you if you want to see it. Uh, and I have a lot of goby, like a lot of skin shredding on my back. Um, so yeah, then but in total I was in the hospital for five, in Modesto Hospital for five weeks. And part of that was, um, like, I probably would have only stayed like two or three, and then I could have been transferred somewhere else. But then I got an infection from the surgery. I had, I had a pretty, I had like a softball size infection in my psoas muscle. And so I was put on some hardcore antibiotics. And so other places didn't necessarily want to take me because it was this hospital's problem, not theirs. Um, 
and they, so they wanted to make sure that that infection was gone or that it wasn't an infection in the hardware because that's a popular thing that can happen is that that surgery is so invasive that that hardware could have had, you know, something could have been done with that and then I would have to go and have another surgery and replace the hardware in my back. And so luckily it wasn't the hardware. Luckily it was just a, a random infection in my psoas muscle. So I was on antibiotics for that until the Craig Hospital in Denver um, agreed to take me and had room for them, room for me. So then after five weeks, like the day before my birthday, in fact, November 21st, I was flown another flight for life um, from Modesto to Denver. And then I was in Denver Craig Hospital. I was an inpatient for a month. And then I did outpatient for a month. And now I'm still, I've just moved into a girlfriend's place um, nearby. Uh, the Craig Hospital is like six miles away that she lives, and I live with her for now um, just because I'm still trying to do PT and um, other physical therapies at Craig. I'm there about five days a week right now. Yeah, but I can drive. I can drive there myself. Yeah, I'm a big girl. And you got a new van. <laughs> I did get a new van, and it's cherry colored, so I call it my chariot. Um, and. Let's see. I don't have any fancy stuff with my van. Like, there's all these fancy tools for people who are in wheelchairs to, like, move. Oh, my God. Like, this guy, like, I had to get the hand controls, which is, are really kind of cool, actually. So they, it's a system that has, like, a button that I press, and it's an electronic system. So when you guys get in the car, it's set up for you to drive. Like, anyone can drive my car. But then I press this button three times, and then it turns on the hand controls. And it's just left hand brake left-hand gas, and then I have a cool trucker knob that I put on my steering wheel so I can steer like this. Uh, but I didn't do any other fancy things to my car. Um, instead of getting those riggings that help move the wheelchair in and out, I decided to get my climbing ranger buddies to build a two-to-one in the back seat. And so that's how I get my wheelchair in and out. We just do a little cordelette rigged on a two-to-one. And I, have, I, hook up, I hook up my wheelchair. I have this little carabiner in the back. So I hook the wheelchair up to that and then pull it in. And then same thing, I just kind of push it out, but I can lower my wheelchair out. It's kind of cool. Um, so then how has the recovery process been for you? Yeah. It's been, as you can imagine, it's been a pile of shit, and it's been amazing with the people at the same time, like the people that have come to help me and are just like strangers that have gone through this similar injury to have them reaching out to me via Facebook email or Instagram email or just my regular email or whatever it is. Like I've had so many people who um, have experienced similar injuries that have reached out and just family and friends and random people reaching out to help me. That's an incredible gift that I've been given. Yeah, there was an event that some folks put on for you. The handstands for Quinn. Yeah, my two friends, Taylor and Nathan, just went for it. Like, they started this event, and it was just like, we have this little climbing gym in Estes, and they just started talking about it. And so they thought, like, maybe we'd have it at the upstairs of this, at Ed's Cantino, where my girlfriend owns the restaurant. Like, let's just do an event there. And then all of a sudden, it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we had to move from Ed's Cantina to the American Legion to the conference center across the hall, or across the street. And so they say, like, 700 people showed up, which is... Wild. You did a handstand there. I did do a handstand. Yeah, I had even I had three PTs come up who had been 
I love it. The three PTs came up, and the week before, I was like, I think I want to do a handstand. And they're like, okay, first, let's get you in the pool. And then they spent one of their lunch hours, like, trying to figure out how, what would be the best method for me to get out of the chair and get into the handstand. Like, I thought that was so cool that they were, like, excited about it. And so they came up, and, uh, yeah, we decided that it was the easiest if I got out of the chair onto the floor and then rolled myself over onto a big yoga ball. And then once I'm on that yoga ball, I can just get my hands on the ground, and they help raise my legs and... Did a handstand. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> that was an amazing, amazing to watch. Um, so yeah, your friends put on this event for you, and um, they've also been raising money for you. I think you have a We Care, or a You Caring, it's called. Yes. Yep. And. She's. You raised one hundred twenty-three thousand dollars from your friends. It, it. Yeah. It. I don't know. I could cry all about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I did a stupid thing, and people are helping me, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, so the recovery process is still, it's going to take a while. And it is going to take a while. Like, uh, I mean, that's where I'm a little conflicted. Like, I'm Quinn, and I'm motivated to do stuff. And so since my brain works and I can, like, wheel around and still move a lot, even though I'm sitting still, uh, I struggle if I, if I should go back to work 40 hours a week, like, tomorrow. Um, and then reaching out to other people who have gone through this, recovery process Uh, you know a lot of people are like we only worked 10 hours for the first year or so um because things are slower like with spinal cord injuries it's not my leg just my legs that don't work like bladder and bowel function has changed so going to the bathroom in the morning takes like god like i'm in the hospital in modesto i was like am i gonna have to wear a diaper the rest of my life uh and i don't (laughs) i have figured out my routine but it's not like a quick eight minutes it takes like a half an hour um, and so things are slower like that. Like me, when I go, I've been swimming laps at the swimming pool because I swam in college, and that's to me that's a really nice reprieve of like one, I'm weightless, um, and two, I can get some cardio. Um, but showering is a whole adventure. Like, are the community pools set up for people to shower? And they think they are, but some of them aren't quite. And dressing takes a little bit of time. And like, my, I'm staying with my brother right now, and he has. Um, a bedroom upstairs, which is a really comfortable bed, but how do I get up the stairs? Oh, he's nice enough to piggyback me. Um, so things take a lot more time, and just like what, how this recovery process works, I don't know. And that's where, again, spinal cord injuries. I was joking yesterday that you tell the doctor, like, oh, I have tingling in my right foot today. And they're like, uh huh. You're like, great, what does that mean? They're like, uh huh. Because they don't know either. Like, we're all our own snowflake, is the joke. That, I mean, somebody could have a T12 spinal cord injury, and they can move their left leg, or, um, but they can't feel it, or I don't know. There's just, like, you just never know how the recovery process is going to be. And I don't want to negate, like, I don't want to just go back to work and forget about, like, okay, I'm paralyzed. Like, I want to give these guys as much of a chance as they can. Like, a recovery could be a year or two years. Or I've had people reach out to me and be like, I started feeling my big toe in my left leg eight years later. Like, you just never know. <laughs> and so, yeah, that whole process is, it's been really difficult. Like, I've 
didn't lose my job, but I, I can no longer, I'm no longer capable of doing the job that I did. Yeah, like I was hiking 30 to 60 miles a week and going up on Long's Peak once a week uh, and rescuing people. And so I can no longer do that active portion of it, but I think that there's other. So trying to work with the Park Service and finding how I can still do search and rescues, but not necessarily be in the field. Um, yeah, and I lost my relationship over this, and I lost my leg use over this. So it's been a an interesting I'm born again situation, like learning to drive, <laughs> learning how to go to the bathroom, learning how to dress. Are you excited for what's to come? Are you like what are you looking forward to? <sighs> I look forward to yeah a year from now, maybe looking back and remembering that I was a crybaby in some moments and laughing at those moments. Yeah, and I really look forward, like, I think it's fortunate that this accident kind of happened as the winter progressed. Um, and so by the time I'm a little more healed and ready, it'll be spring and summer, and I'm looking forward to breathing some more fresh air, like being outside for an hour or five and getting a bike. I've ordered a hand cycle. Yeah, and so I can start biking, and I'm really excited for that to start. Like, I have some friends who are like, we're going to do some bike. I don't know, like, the friends and their motivation of, like, where we're going to go. We're going to kayak around Cuba, and we're going to do some bike tours from Durango to Moab. I don't know, all the things. (laughs) The small things that we're going to (laughs) do. The small kayaking in Cuba. Um, What are you afraid of, Quinn? We were talking about this in the car right over. Uh, one of my biggest fears is love, uh, being accepted as a short person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being attractive. I think you're attractive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Get your hand off my leg. I'm just <laughs> um, what are you most proud of? Uh, I'm most proud of. That's a good question. I guess I'm most proud of um, the connections I've made because with this accident, it's pretty clear that uh, I think I'm a weirdo that people see something in me that's uh, giving or worth it and so I'm most proud of myself for reaching out to all those people uh, all the people in the world even if and maybe that's what I'm hoping is what's reflective upon me now like you don't people don't be afraid to reach out to me just because I'm different and I think that's what I'm proud of is that I don't think I've ever really shunned people because they're different. Um, yeah, and tried to always be as exhausting as it could be or as much as my one of my best friends is like, Quinn, sometimes you just don't have time for people. I'm like, why not? There's time for everyone. There's time for everything. Let's make it work. Yeah. Yeah, you have something in you that um, glows. Like you just have... Um, and energy around you that really glows and shines everywhere you go. And that's what I really um, admire about you, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I have just one more question, and it's kind of a silly question. So if you could um, use any piece of gear as a metaphor for your life, 
what would it be? Ball nuts. <laughs> Can you please explain? <laughs> <laughs> They're just a really useful tool that uh, not everyone is like totally accepting of sometimes. <laughs> but they can really help you out in a pinch. And it's funny to say ball nuts. Thank you again to the American Alpine Club for flying Quinn and I out to make this live recording of the podcast happen. Thank you to Chris Caloose, the man behind the Enormocast podcast, for recording the interview at the live event. Make sure to check his podcast out. And thank you to the sponsors, Mammut, the Colorado Outward Bound School, Health IQ, and Petzl. The Colorado Outward Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 50 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Health IQ uses science and data to secure low rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like climbers, alpinists, skiers, runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com sharp, or mention the promo code sharp when you talk to a Health IQ agent. And if you weren't listening and learning from this podcast, what would it all be for? So thank you so much for listening. Remember, play hard and be smart. <laughs>